consumerism as we conclude our series on cultural critique series. When I say the word consumerism, of what do you think? Consumerism. Here's what a lot of people think. I'm going to show you a, a quick video blurb. Baby Sills 14, here we go. I'm going to I want to ask how many of you were part of something like that in the past, Black Fridays. You know, what is consumerism? When we look at Webster's Dictionary, a few, top, a few dif- definitions, the theory that an increasing consumption of goods is economically desirable, a preoccupation with and an inclination towards the buying of consumer goods. Or Oxford says, the buying and using of goods and services. Listen, as Investopedia defines it as the idea that increasing the consumption of goods and services purchased in the market is always a desirable goal and that a person's well-being and happiness depends fundamentally on obtaining consumer goods and material possessions. So it's the desire to get more and more, yes, to supply and demand and to make things by which you sell, but also they want to ever put before us to buy more and consume, and we get the idea that consuming, consuming more and more is actually a good thing. But what, what is the Christian view of consumerism? When we look at the Christian perspective, we would look at all the definitions that I just read and look at around us, and we might come up with something like this. It's a preoccupation with consuming more and more goods, to have more and more merchandise and services. It's, to get, it's a focus on getting the latest the best, um, the most recent, um, the most of things. It's throwing away last year's model because it just isn't good any longer. Or the 55 inch isn't good, I need a 70 inch. And it's getting something that's newer and fancier and can do more. Consumerism really goes beyond a healthy economy. We're not against a healthy economy. Uh, we're, we're grateful to have one. Um, but it goes far more than that in just active trade. And it starts to tip the skills. Yay, the scales are way tipped towards materialism and greed, aren't they? You know, we become materialistic. I, I want this. It's confusing of, of our needs for our wants. You know, I, I want something. I reverse it. Um, it's something that just demands more and more. It's really consumerism, I'm just not content with what I have. I see this commercial, I see what so-and-so has, or I walk by this store, I look on Amazon, and I just have to have something more, and wanting to have more and more. And it really gets to the point that if I don't get what I want, I'm going to be pretty upset about it. In fact, we've heard a lot of Commentary, but I want you to see a snapshot from Good Morning America of a recent brawl that broke out when a person didn't get what they wanted. For eager shoppers across the country was a black and blue Friday. Ugly scenes, people slugging it out right in the middle of the aisle, fighting to get their hands on some of the best deals. This woman, we can't get enough of this video, using what looks like a stun gun on another bargain hunter. And ABC's Rob Nelson has been following this all. It begs the question, Rob, has Black Friday gone a bit too far? You imagine that? You go out shopping and you got something first and somebody else wanted it. They're going to wrestle you down and fight you and you bring out their stun gun. Oh, there was a lot more excitement in that video. I just opted not to show all to you. You know, when Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, 
do not be conformed to this world. He wasn't necessarily, per se, thinking of consumerism. But he was talking about the dominant values of our society, that we not be sucked in by these values, um, that we not be, be consumed by, by this empire that's in domain, do, um, control, that we become shaped as they want us to become shaped. You know, one writer wrote this, and it's, it's pretty long, it's a pretty sharp definition. Consumerism as an advanced cultural expression of materialism is just a modern institutionalized expression of the same selfishness that has always been the problem. It's nothing new. It's been selfishness since man's been created in the garden of wanting something that they didn't have a right to get. But the word of God, as we'll look in a few moments, it's just the first 20 minutes introduction. We're not to be conformed. We're not to be consumed with our world's materialistic culture. We're not to become like the world that just wants more and more in the selfish drive, regardless of the needs of others or what God wants. It's not to be about me, I, um, we. It's, it's, it's not to be about what we want. You know, when you're consumed with getting all that the world has, imagine you could get to the top of your profession and you've gotten everything that the world has to offer, but you don't have Jesus Christ in your life. Are you going to be happy? Are you going to be able to get to the top and say, I have reached it now. I'm happy. I'm consumed with all of this. I just got everything that I wanted. We've seen this snapshot before, but I want us to see it again. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He knows a lot and he's great, but we know the answer. I want to look at three categories of consumerism as we look from a Christian perspective. We'll then listen to a song and then we'll shift gears and look at what the Bible says in addressing these categories and have application at the end. But if I were to put three categories as we look at consumerism, um, I would start, first of all, with material goods. You know, we look at the materialism around us. You know, shopping has never been easier, right? I mean, imagine, we, d we don't have to go to the mall and get, you know, fight the long lines, look for a parking space. You go to a shelf, you're looking for an item, and it's depleted, it's not there what you want, or it's not, you're not sure it's the right size, then wait in a long line and get tussled around. We could just wake up in our pajamas and go to Amazon Prime, type it in, and we could get something, and chances are maybe we'll have it the next day. You know, it's that quick of shopping that we could get it immediately. Um, it's so easy for us. And you know what? It's not only fun on Amazon, right, or ordering, when you order the thing and you're excited about it, but isn't it also double fun when it comes? I mean, so we get all of this excitement on shopping. You know, we as Americans are surrounded with an abundance, surrounded with an abundance. If you don't believe it, can I come over to your garage and look? <laughs> um, you know, some figures that we look at, Americans have more stuff. In 2017, so it's five years old, but we spent $240 billion on watches, um, 
um, books, luggage, jewelry, and phone. I think half the books were spent by pastor in that year in 2017. And you know what? That is twice as much as we spent in 2002, but we only grew in population by 13%. So just spending more and more money in what we're buying. You know, shopping online is so easy. How many of you hate to return stuff or, should I ask, don't return stuff online that you get? Okay, you're not good. <laughs> you know, nine out of 10 shoppers surveyed say well, if it doesn't fit for them or doesn't, it's not the right thing, they don't return it. They just keep it because it's just a pain. It's just easy to buy things and end up keeping it. Most things that I buy online, I feel like I don't wind up using. A waffle maker, yes, for college, and I never use it. It's probably still in the box in my basement at home. Yeah, I mean, like, lipsticks. Yeah, I buy clothes a lot, and a lot of times I'm too lazy to return them. You know, so we're not going to return things. I mean, we're just going to pile up more and more stuff. You know, it's a culture. Our society is conditioned. Um, conditioned to just get instant gratification. Um, don't we just want instantly? I can remember years ago the word instant gratification. I'm working um, on a sermon over in um, Long Island, and we had a young man from our youth group trimming bushes, and I ran out there and said, Ryan, just back off. Let me trim some bushes a little bit. I want some instant gratification, because you don't always get that as you're preaching through, working through a sermon, just something that, well, I could have now today, I could have just bought it online something, you know, get instant gratification. Um, according to financial experts, the percentage of American debt is rising more and more. I mean, we want this instant gratification, um, and really it becomes entitlement. I want to be gratified, and I think I'm entitled. I want to live as my parents did. Okay, I understood it took them 30 years to get that stuff. I want to get it in the first year, is what I understand the millennial mindset. I'm a few years beyond from that. Um, but we just want stuff. The American indebtedness, you know, was about 80%, 8 out of 10 Americans are in debt. And I'm not talking about mortgage. Um, Experian conducted a survey, and they said that credit card balance was 5,200, being killed by those interest rates. Shame on you. Um, car loans, nearly um, 21,000, and personal loans amounted to over 17,000. Americans are in debt on average, $40,000, not counting mortgage. Really? That, that, that's bizarre. Entitlement means you deserve something. I'm going to buy even though I don't have the money in the bank to pay for it. I'm going to put it on a credit card because I want it right now in some gratification. And I'm entitled to it. I worked hard. I'm entitled to that vacation. Forget it. I don't have the money. I'm going to Hawaii or I'm going to Barbados or wherever you want to go because you worked hard and you deserve it. Um, or we're going to get that laptop or you're going to get that soda or maybe you're going to get that candy bar because you deserve that you, wor you worked hard. Um, commercials feed into that, doesn't it? You, the you deserve it commercials. Here are two um, that give you this idea of you deserve it. You ought to go for it right now because it's your right. That's fine. Yes, we We're hanging that big old TV with just a little lean. You deserve a delicious Dr. Pepper. <gasps> Indulged in the rich and creamy delicious milk chocolate. You. Because you deserve it. I mean, I could kind of go with the last one. You know, so we look in materialism that we deserve it. We want these things. 
categories of being consumed. A second category I want to address briefly is in our relationships. You know, this, this consumeristic self, self approach to living is really evident, sadly, in our relationships. That we take this, I deserve it, I want it, I, I demand it, I have a right into relationships. And I, I think sometimes we construct lists consciously um, or subconsciously. We have this list of what we want our friends to meet. Um, and if they don't meet it, what happens? We just write our friends off. And worse yet, if that friend is a spouse, if they don't meet our needs enough, then we'll just go have our needs met somewhere else or people will end their marriages. Our society says the ultimately of consumeristic relationships and selfishness is you deserve to be happy. So whatever makes you happy. This is going back a few years ago, but in 1985, my brother had moved out to Colorado and um, he was in construction, started a construction business, bought a restaurant, then bought a boutique shop so his wife could stay busy on the side. And um, just so busy. And Rich and I were very close. And throughout college years, I wrote, he wrote me once a week and I did to him. So we would usually talk once a week. And in our conversations, I'm not hearing where he's going to church. And so I eventually brought up to him, Rich, you're, you just had Josh. You're going to raise a godless generation. That was a lifeline. He never called me again for a couple of years. I would call him. He would talk. It would be half, you know, when you didn't have caller ID then, I could get through. Um, two years later when I heard he was flying into Carolina to see my brother, I didn't tell my parents or anybody. Lynn and I went down, met my brother down there. And he said this line to me, when people hurt me, I just write them off. Isn't that the classic consumeristic? All that matters is about me. But by God's grace, God got a hold of his life. He turned around. He became a giant down in their church in Mount Laurel, um, a leading deacon, passed away in 2010, but, but he ended right. Um, but, but consume for ourselves. All that matters is me. This past week, I was talking to my son-in-law, and I had asked my daughter, Joanna, because Mark's going with me to Israel, and I said, um, you know, Mark, if you snore, you know, I just filled out the, the sheet. Twin beds, don't worry, we're not going to get a double bed. And um, if you snore, you're going to be in the bathroom. I said, because you know what? It's all about me. <laughs> but that's really the approach that we have too often, you know, that in relationships, consume. I'm consumed with me. Uh, we take that into our churches also. Um, churches are consumeristic. It's all about us. Um, people become church consumers. You know, I'm going to go to this church. I'm going to try it out. I hear that they have great preaching or a great singing or some great youth programs. But once it starts to lose its luster, once it loses interest, what happens? You know, I'm, I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to move on to see where the greener meadows are and where, where it could hold my interest. You know, shopping, you know, church shopping perpetuates a cycle of rotating churches based on preferences, based on what you want, based on what a person thinks, well, this is what I need. I need this for my children. I need this for me. I need this kind of, and so we stay till we lose interest. This can be seen, maybe I could just 
quickly put it into two categories or two areas. Church shopping can be in a, maybe put down into two, two areas. Focus on yourself or we're focused on ourselves. Let's focus on me. It's, it's all on me. Treat yourself. You deserve it. You're worth it. So I'm going to go to a church where they will meet my needs, uh, where, where the pastor will preach the way I want him to preach, or who will say what I want them to say. Or the moment they talk about this topic, oh, and I don't like that topic, I'm ready to bolt. Or um, the songs, as long as they sing the songs that I like, or as long as they offer the programs that I want, but boy, they no longer offer that program. Never mind that the deacons and pastors prayed about it, presented it to the church. I don't like that. Boy, I'm ready to bolt. See, that's, that's me focus, right? Or how about losing interest? Consumer culture teaches that isn't everything expendable? I mean, look, look at what we've thrown out in the last year. Look at, you know, what they say is thrown out online. It's, everything is expendable and counting people. So our society says, we're encouraged to consume something only as long as it suits us, as it, as it meets our needs. Some look at churches that same way, um, that we're consumed with all of what we want. And when it's not meeting my needs, I lose interest, I'm ready to move on because in reality, what we're saying is, I'm a taker, not a giver. And, and churches, uh, I, I, I won't go down this road too much. I'll leave it up to the pastor. But people don't faithfully tithe because we're consumers. I'm not going to, you're kidding, 10%? You know what, maybe even 12%? I'm not going to do that because it's all about me. I want to be able to buy that. I remember talking to a, a friend that was a policeman on Long Island. He didn't go to my church, but he sat in the parking lot and would come in and talk. He didn't understand that you could talk on your job, but I'm studying. <laughs> um, but Vic and I would talk a lot. I went over to his house for dinner. I once saw this, this um, picture on the side, and he got a second job. Never mind that Suffolk County Police at that time was the highest play, paid police force in America. But he got to second job selling Shackley products, trying to get this pyramid scheme, trying to suck me in. I said, no, thank you. Um, but he had on the side, it was a picture of a motorhome. That's what I want to give. And he, and he told me, no, I don't have time to tithe. I don't tithe. I'm saving up to get out of debt. I want to buy that motorhome. So it's all about people. God, may I, may I see a bigger cause? May I see the work of God? I don't want to be consumed about what I want. I want to be consumed with what God wants. You know, the Bible's filled with consumers, and we don't have time to, to go down there. But think of Genesis, right? Um, Genesis, we start with Adam and Eve, consumers. We go to Cain, what a consumer. We go to the people prior to the flood, um, Lot, choosing the well-water uh, valley, men of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, Shechem, raping um, um, Dinah. Uh, we see Joseph's brothers, and on and on the story goes, just, just greedy, selfish, materialistic people. But is that the way God wants us to be? I want you to listen to this song that, that's going to be played. And its words may be true of us. May we thirst for more of God. God, I want to be consumed with you. Not consumed with stuff, but may, may I be consumed with you. Many a dream has died Like a tree planted by the water We never will run dry 
turn with me, please, to the book of Daniel. We were made for more than ordinary lives. We weren't made to just survive. We were made to thrive. Book of Daniel. I want us to see through a couple points in this book to see how we're able to not allow our culture to influence us or to consume us. That Daniel, he didn't just survive in Babylon. Daniel thrived in Babylon. And how we living in our own Babylon here, how we cannot just survive, but how by the grace of God we can thrive. I want to look at four points here as we look at the book of Daniel. Turn with me to chapter 1. I'm really looking at verse 8, but briefly verses 3 and following. Resolve to live for God. As we look at the life of Daniel, Daniel resolved to live for God. These four points in his life. Just background, Judas conquered at 605 B.C. Daniel and his colleagues and a group of Israelites were taken into captivity. And these captives, verses 3 and 4 show us, these Jewish young men were both physically and mentally just sharp young men. And the king looked at them really like, like assets in the palace. How can I mold them? How can I make them, use them for, for my own benefit? So he looked to assimilate them. He looked to make these young men become part of the culture of that he desired and he was looking for. And we see in verses 3 and 4 that they were made to learn the literature and the language of the Babylonians. Time doesn't look, allow us to really get into that. But they were put into this rigorous three-year program. And they were learning the literature and the language of the Babylonians so that they could be brought up to speed. And perhaps they were going to give parts of the Jewish aspects and how to help the king in running his kingdom. And then they were also, their names were changed. They had godly Hebrew names that pointed to God, Elohim, Yahweh as their God. The king, Babylonians, changed their names. But all the rub, so to speak, was effective or hit on their, on their um, lives in verse 8. They, could, they couldn't take this. They could take the education. They could take the language. They couldn't stop people from calling them by their godly Hebrew names. But here's one area that the line was drawn in the sand. Daniel and his three friends said, we cannot bow down. We cannot agree to this. Look what happens. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. So here the king gives them this food, and he wants them to partake of this food and to eat part of it, what's given to them. Daniel and his friends looked at this and said, we cannot eat of this food. Well, why? Because this food was specific food that was forbidden in the Mosaic law for them to eat. Gave specific guidelines. And not only that, but for them to eat this food, it's going to be making a statement that we are honoring your God by eating this food. That we are agreeing with what you say about this God. And in essence, they would be worshiping this God. This was to them that line in the sand that they were willing to spend their lives on. They would not give into. But it's the word that's used here. It's the word resolve. They were resolved. They were determined. They would not give in. They would not break Exodus 34 and, their, and, and the commands of God. Resolve means to fix, to establish, to confirm, to stand. It says that they were resolved that they would not defile themselves. They were, to use a theme that I love, all in. They were all in. They weren't going to give in to the commands of the culture they weren't going to be consumed by the culture. 
They were refusing. We will not defile ourselves. We are going to stay true to the word of God. They would not allow Babylon to influence them in how they were going to live. They were going to not just survive. They were going to thrive in accordance to God's word. And if it meant that they died, they would be thriving still because they would have obeyed God. And so we know the, the rest of the history, this incredible plan that Daniel came up with. He took the necessary steps to approach the eunuch and tell them, listen, we're, we, we're just not going to do that. But we're going to give you a test. And we know the, the rest that gave us 10 days. You see, Daniel was able to be resolved to live for God because he got his identity from God. He didn't get his identity from the culture. He didn't care to be accepted by them. All he wanted to do was to be accepted by God. And he knew God was true, and so he was resolved. He was determined to live for God. He was anchored, may I say. He was consumed with God. He was consumed with God, and he was resolved to live for him. Now, he's not past Lardy's age, still a young man. He's, what, maybe 16, 17? He's just a kid. But he's a kid that's firmly planted on the word of God. He's going to stand for God. And he would begin as he began here. He would live the rest of his life consistently for God. So how can we not be consumed in our culture? May we be resolved to live for God. God, I am going to live for you. I am planting my feet on your word. And I'm going to be firm, establishing that. I'm going to live for you as you want me to live. We'll have application on the back end of our message here. Secondly... How did he not get consumed? I think, though the word of God may not come out and say it, I think it's a fair point that we can establish. There was refuge in godly friends. In verse 8, Daniel said, Daniel resolved. And we're going to see a little bit later that the, all of them, the three friends are coming together and they're in agreeing that they're, they're not going to give in to the king's wishes. But we jump to chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, and we see the, the three boys. I don't know where Daniel was. Um, but they're, they're living out a resolution that Daniel would have lived out, and he did in chapter 1. And we see in 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're brought before the king. And the king was like, is this really what I heard? And there are three accusations that are brought against them. And we see that accusation is actually in, in chapter 3, verse 12. The second and third ones are true, that you do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they were said, hey, king, they're not worshiping your gods, and they're not worshiping the golden image. That was true. And they said, king, that is true. They were resolved to not do that. But, you know, where does it come from? Where did this resolution, yeah, they were firm in their resolution to God, but do you think that there was any encouragement as a group of the four of them together? Do you think that they fed off one another? Do you think they just lived separate lives, came out of their bedroom, didn't talk about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Daniel, about any of their value system or worshiping God, and just marched to their routine, and, said, and all of a sudden, oh, look, I'm saying the same thing. No, I think that they, they had camaraderie. Now, I know I'm reading into that, but I think it's not too far of a stretch. I think these three saw in their peers that they stood for God when they were given that original edict of food, they each said the same thing. I will not eat this one. I will not. They saw their, their, their agreement together and their bond that they were willing to stand for God. And at that point on, that these men would have encouraged each other. They would have found sweet fellowship. They would have been consumed 
with God in the midst of a godless, consumeristic culture with one another. I really believe that they found refuge in each other's passion and love for God and their commitment that they fed off of one, in, one another and their, and their love for God. Again, we're, we're going to say more about that in a moment, but when we have friends that stand with us, that we can go to them, that our lives are hurting and, and, and individuals that maybe we could just pour out our heart or just prayer requests or dreams that we have or direction or our goals or how we're witnessing or sharing, whatever we're doing in our, in our lives, and we could go to friends of similar stripe, there's a great encouragement. And Daniel, Shadrach, and Benigno, they were each in that same area. These men were, were passionate followers of God. I look at another area recalibrated in chapter 6, verse 10, around the purposes of God. How can, how can I not be consumed with the, our culture? How can I not become part of just another statistic of a worldly Christian in this world in which we live? How can I live focused for God? I see something in the life of Daniel that is a great challenge, that should be a great challenge to each of us. There was a decree that was signed in chapter 6. Daniel heard about it. Look at the words in verse 10. What happens? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. What do the next words say? As he had done once in a while, right? Is that what it says? As he had done previously. I mean, he, he was, it was a regular habit in his life. So Daniel hears his decree sign. He knows that if he disobeys it, his head could be on the chopping block. But he still gets on his knees and bows towards Jerusalem. I think Pastor brought it up a few weeks ago, a month ago, talking 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, when you go into captivity and you're taken into a foreign land, Pray towards Jerusalem that God will restore you. So you see his commitment? He's recalibrating continually before God. He's adjusting himself continually. He's getting throughout the day, three times a day at least here, praying towards Jerusalem, crying out to God, God, please bring us back, set us free, take us, bring us home. What's my point? You want to not be consumed by this world? Tell me about your devotions this past week. Tell me about how you pursued God this past week. Tell me how it was on Tuesday for you. Or tell me what you did on Thursday. How about yesterday morning? What was your devotion? Are, are we spending time with God every day? Daniel was resolved and he continued to be resolved in his commitment towards God that he continued to throw himself before God. We're familiar with the phrase, get into the word of God. And allow the word of God to get into you. Daniel got into the word. Daniel knew the word of God. Daniel spent time with God. Daniel kept adjusting, getting tune-ups in his life daily before God. Meeting with God so that he's ready to deal with a world that's very consumeristic, selfish-oriented. He didn't want to become part of them. The fourth thing that I see is in Daniel's life, turning back to chapter 2. Daniel was anxious to reflect God's glory. That was Daniel's desire. He wanted God to be made big. He wanted people to have a big view of God. It wasn't about him. It was about, it was about God. 
So the story flows in chapter 2 that the king has this dream and no one can interpret it in his kingdom. And he's about to get rid of all of his magicians. Daniel hears of this. He says, hold on. Tell the, tell the king to, to come and let me come in his presence. I can interpret the dream. So he's brought into, the, into his presence in chapter 2. And we see that Daniel is before the king says, can you interpret it? And Daniel says, there is a God in verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals the mysteries. He's not going to say, well, you know, I got a little ability going on here. I'm not going to lie. You know, yeah, I, I could take care of this. No, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's quick to point to God. But that wasn't the end of it. So the dream's interpreted. Everything goes great. We jump forward in the chapter, chapter 6, verses 25 to 27. Daniel, always ever anxious. Now we're about 60 years later from chapter 1. At the end of his life, he's maybe 80 years old. He's in the lion's den. The king quickly gets up and Darius wants to know, Is, was your God able to save you? Is everything okay? Are you, are, are you good? My God sent his angels. But I want to look at the words of, of Darius by being around this man and his influence, what he says in verses 25 and following of chapter 6. Then Darius wrote to all of the people, um, verse 26, before the God of um, Daniel, he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. Daniel had an incredible influence. Daniel just was anxious to reflect God's glory through his life. If we have the driving desire, God, this day I want to reflect Jesus through my life. I want God to be seen through everything that I do and say, how I think, how I deal with my money, things, how I spend my time. If we just want God to be made big and great, we will not become consumers in this world, right? The two can't. I can't become a consumer in this world and be anxious to reflect how great I am. Now let's put it all into principles and application. How can these four principles that are before us be applied so we don't become consumed by our culture? How can it be applied so that we can be resolved to live for God, that we pursue God continually in our lives? Let's look at a couple points. First of, all, first of all, let me address in our relationships. To talk about the book of Daniel and to make this doesn't seem quite right, but you ever, you ever watch the Groundhog Day movie? <laughs> it's a Groundhog Day movie is about this, this weather man. He's a very arrogant, selfish man. It's all about him. And he goes to the town. His crew goes to the town of Puxatawney, um, Pennsylvania, where Phil shows up. You ever see Phil, the groundhog? I'm sure there's been a bunch of Phil's, but nonetheless. And so he goes here, and this guy is just full of himself. He hates the town. He hates his stupid Phil show. And um, so he does his broadcast. He wakes up the next morning, but it turns out to be the same day after day after day after day. And, and same thing happens. Everything happens until over time he stops being an arrogant, selfish, it's all about me person. And he becomes a caring, gentle, loving person. And then he wakes up that next morning and it's the next day. Well, that's kind of what 
God wants us to do in our lives, that we not be consumed about ourselves, that we not be selfish, that it's all about, about me, that when we look at these desires, God, I want to be resolved to live for you. I have friends in my life that we'll talk about in a moment that are encouraging in my walk. I recalibrate daily around you. I want to reflect God's purposes. It will make an impact in our relationships. We, we can't live this way and have relationships that are horrendous, that are consumeristic, if we're applying these points into our lives. We will be countercultural. This culture is, it's all about me. Uh, we're not going to be concerned with our, we won't be consumed with ourselves. We're not going to be consumed with our selfish interests. It's not going to be what we want, but we're going to be consumed with the interests of God, right? If we follow these principles, we'll be consumed with the interests of, of other people. You know, what we have as our, our, our theme of our church may be more than that, that I, that, I sac that I love God sacrificially and others selflessly. No, I love God supremely and others sacrificially. That'll be something we really want to live with. God, I want to love you supremely. I want to love you first in my life. And because of that love, God, I'm going to love others sacrificially. I'm going to love others as you have me. What does it look like? When we're not consumers, what does it look like in our relationships? Think of the last year. How many people did you have over the last year to your house for dinner? For dessert? If we go through the whole year and we're going to struggle to find three families, two families, one family, ooh, is that really God's plan? It's going to be families that are going to be more than just me vegging out, watching the champion Eagles win another game. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> but it's really building into people's lives. It's more about me just vegging out, doing what I want. How can I invest in people? It's going to be looking to connect with a guy maybe or with a lady with a lady at, at Dunkin' or wherever your favorite place is and over coffee and just investing in their life. What's happening in your life? It's getting involved in a small group. Um, it's, you know, we don't do small groups just because, okay, we got to fill it up. We're intentional. We want to have groups that are small that we could get to know one another as we pray for one another. And we're able to rejoice over the Melissa Rios stories, you know, and we see what God's doing in groups and see what God's doing in life. We want to rejoice in that. May we invest in people's time, invest in people's lives so that they're pushed towards the kingdom. That's non-consumeristic thinking. It's not just me living for myself, marching off to church, but really living for God. I want, to look, I want you to show um, a, a brief snapshot here from testimony from John. Hey, church family. My name is John. I just want to take a moment and talk to you about relationships. Two years ago, I started attending Faith Baptist Church, and what I remember early on was being able to have a conversation with Pastor Dave when I first started attending and him making the time to meet with me, uh, inviting me for lunch. I remember doing that about three, four times. And what that did, and what was really special about that was that the Lord used that to be able to get me connected in discipleship group. Um, and I attended with three other men 
and uh, was really challenged by Pastor Walker's group and uh, challenged to read my Bible every day, challenged to um, really be accountable to others. Um, that wasn't easy to do, but I realized the importance of that. And since then, my faith has grown so much, and I thank God that I've built such, uh, such sweet relationships and friendships with people and uh, been able to really grow um, and get together with men in our church where, you know, uh, that has really taught me what it means to be a man of God, um, of, um, what it means to be a father, what it means to be uh, a husband. Um, and I just, I've grown so much from it and I, I um, hope that this will encourage you in some way. And uh, thank you. I asked John to give that. I, I didn't um, mention my name. I, I, I'm sorry for that. But I really was, what I was after when he talked about pastor and the D group. I said, talk about D group because I know how much he loved that. It was awesome, the men speaking in his life. And I said, talk about Conrad. But I gave him a minute and he ran out of time, I guess. But, but Conrad was huge in his life. You guys still meet at the gym. You know, they treadmill together and just keep building in his life and just that godly influence. Fred Thompson was huge in his life and still is. You know, taking him out to breakfast. But that's just an example that uh, I've watched where that interaction and that getting together and encouraging Christian brethren to walk so that when we leave one another's presence, we're just pushed a little bit more towards the kingdom and that I'm not going to be consumed with myself, but we're looking at other people and we're caring for people. So that's just relationships. I, I get it could be a whole subject in itself. Or let me talk just briefly about marriages. You know, if we're resolved to live for God... Um, we will deny ourselves and follow God, and that will apply in our marriages. Um, you know, the world says when you have problems, when you're struggling in a marriage, when things aren't going well or it's not the easiest, you're not comfortable, you know what? Just walk away. It's greener on the other side of the fence. Try somewhere else. But that's not what God says, does he? God says work through the problems. Work through it. God wants you to mend it. Put your spouse first. You know, what kind of a marriage would it be if the husband put the wife's needs first and the wife put the husband's needs first? I mean, you get to a little time together. What game would you like to play? No, I want to play a game that you want to play. No, I want to play. You know, like, it's like always looking at what the other one wants to do. But that's God's idea. Not, not to be as we see today. It's all about me and when people get upset and they don't talk for a while. And if that continues long enough, eventually it's the D word that's starting to be thrown around divorce. But God, God doesn't see that. God wants us to have marriages that, that bring him honor, that deny ourselves, and that just persistently living Christ before, before the individual. And I wish we had time, and we don't. Conrad's going to come up and read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, but I wish we could give you five minutes, but we don't have it. <laughs> um, I appreciate his example and his marriage. And even we deacons that lived this, mor uh, this morning just had the joy of listening to Melissa's testimony for membership and talking about Conrad being persistent in her life. Um, just living a godly example is pretty, pretty awesome. Thanks, Pastor Dave. Um, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Second subject just to address briefly, serve in your home, your church, and your community. Um, If we're going to apply these principles that we looked at through the book of Daniel and not be so consumeristic, we're not going to be selfish people. We're going to look at ways that we could serve others. And when was the last time that you thought of making a meal for somebody that had a need or you thought of taking over cookies or you thought of just going and cutting their grass or, or, or power washing the side of their house or ways that you could serve people. And that's what non-consumeristic lifestyle will be. We'll get involved and serve. I want to hit, because we're running out of time, I want to hit one at last area that whether I like it or not, um, it's getting closer and closer. I want to challenge you all in the area of retirement. You know, we look at how do we not be consumers in the area of retirement? A lot of things that Lynn and I pray through, think through, talk through. Um, Retirement, may we not waste those years that God gives us in pursuing selfish interests and pleasures. Not just sitting on the sidelines and, and doing what we want. Watch TV, if that's what you want. Go out and spend more money eating out and come home and but may we use that final chapter and the bar of Piper's words to do more than collecting seashells on the seashore. May it be more than just visiting golf resorts. Uh, do we really, my friends, do we really want to spend the last 15 years of that, what God gives us, or the last 20 years of our life saying to God, sorry that I kind of spent it on vacation. You know, is there not more that we want to do for our lives than that? You know, how will we explain it to God that when we had the most unencumbered chapter of our lives, we spent it on selfish pleasures? So we need to come up with a plan. You need to come up with a plan. What's it going to look like for retirement? When you spend and you don't have to put in a clock, how can you use your time for God? And here are a couple of things I just challenge you to throw down. Maybe you can ask Kevin. Kevin, what do you need? Uh, you're, I, you know... I see Kevin sitting around a lot. He doesn't have a lot to do, so he may not have a lot for you to do. <laughs> this church is one hurting church when you, when you retire. Um, but to say to him, Kevin, hey, can I do two, two, three, four, five hours of work? What can I do for you this week? You know, way that we can use all of this time now that we have. Or secondly, get connected in a D group. Start to invest in people's lives, and then you can just be in contact with them. I kiddingly say to, to guys, I can see it in the future. Husband comes home, how was your day today? It was okay, but man, that guy's driving me crazy. I had seven text messages and I'm at work. This retired Crompton is killing me. But you know, maybe we be involved in people's lives. Maybe we continue to invest in people. Thirdly, use your resources and hospitality to impact people for the kingdom. Have people over. You have 12 hours to get your house clean, (laughs) and you can have them over. Um, Luck to invest and pour into people. And you know what? You might say, well, resources are limited. Okay, have people over for crackers and cheese. It'll still be a blast. But invest in people. Fourth, um, what are you doing with all your time and money? How about asking 
our pastor, Ray Edwards. Hey, tell me what's, what's needed. I'm going to go down to Panama. Go in January. Great way to enjoy the weather, warm weather and serve God. But go down. Maybe I'm going to paint. If you have carpentry drills, what can I do in carpentry skills? What trees can I trim? But getting involved in using your time and resources that God has given you to further his kingdom. Um, find a church plant. Find a church plant that maybe you could partner with for a couple weeks, a couple months. Um, even if it's just doing some basic carpentry skills around the property. Um, maybe you have some other skills that you could be a blessing to them. Get involved in Mosaic. Uh, what are ways that we can use our resources? May we be concerned for not selfish pleasures, but consumed with godly pleasures for God's glory. If you travel down the streets of Cairo on a hot, dusty day, You'll be gagging and coughing as you make your way down and you find the right alley. And you'll see Arabic signs and it'll point you in the right direction. Hopefully you have somebody that can read Arabic that can point you to this cemetery. And you'll find this overgrown plot. It was a graveyard for American missionaries. And as you're looking, you're going to find this tombstone. And there you'll find this sun-scorched tombstone that reads, No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Sacred to the memory of William Whiting Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden is one of my heroes in the faith. I love reading about him. As a young man, extremely wealthy, had a present that graduation present went around the world. His parents gave him. And he got a burden for the Far East and the Muslims that never heard the name of Christ. Came back, apart from his parents, begging him to take over the family business, which wasn't Borden cheese or dairy. Um, wealth made, dad made it from Chicago, I mean, um, Colorado. Investments. Um, went to Yale and then Princeton. During his college years, he gave away $1 million, which was his inheritance given. That today would be an equivalent of $22 million. During his years in 1910, 8, in um, Yale, then went to Princeton Seminary, he gave to the Moody and Sankey Evangelistic Crusade. He gave, he started Yale um, um, Mission, gave away to Bible societies, all of his money. His friends talked about how they were walking New York City and Borden would let's see a car. He said, I would love to have a car. He could have bought a thousand cars, they said, but he never did. Anyway, this man set sail for China and stopped in Egypt and he contracted spinal meningitis. Within one month, he was dead. Was that a tragedy? God used that life to turn thousands to missions. I'm going to tell you what a tragedy is. You go a short distance from Borden's grave. And you'll make your way to the Egyptian National Museum where King Tut's exhibit is. Tut was boy king, was 17 years old. And he was, when he died, he was buried with gold chariots and a lot of gold artifacts. He was put in a gold tomb, literally within a gold tomb, within gold tombs, within gold tombs, within gold tombs. There was tons of gold in his tomb. Because they believed that in the afterlife you take it all with you. But the earthly treasure intended for King's Tut, eternal enjoyment, stayed right where he was buried. 
Tut's life was tragic because of, an awful, of, of a truth discovered too late. Couldn't take it with you. But Borden, Borden, instead of leaving his wealth behind, he was able to send it ahead. So here's the challenge as I close with his last sentences. What are you going to do with your life? Will we be consumers? Are you going to waste your life on selfish, I deserve it, consumeristic lifestyle? Or will you, or will you use it in a way that only makes sense if eternity is real and the gospel is true? Let's close in prayer. God, may we be consumed with you. God, may this season of the year, this new year, see such a consumption, such a passion, such a fire in our hearts that we thrive, that we're consumed with your greatness, that we burn to tell others about you, that we burn to invest in each other's lives, we burn to use our resources to further your kingdom our talents and our our abilities, our treasures. God, to make much of you. God, may we be resolved to live for you. May we daily recalibrate. May we get together with godly friends. And God, may we have a yearning to reflect your greatness. God, we love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Now with that,